ladies and gentlemen. The story you're about to see is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Today we're honored to have a special guest. You've seen him in some of your favorite movies, The Rocketeer, Goodfellows, Dick Tracy. What a neat coincidence that I ran into Karen, his agent, for this, our new Crime Favorites episode. You've played your share of criminals. Can you pick a favorite? I'm Paul Sorvino. I'm sorry, Paul. (laughs) I was so excited about having you on, I forgot to introduce you. Well, I wouldn't worry about that, son. I'm Paul Sorvino. Yes, everyone, welcome. Paul Sorvino. Karen came to the house. She's very upset. This is no good. Your agent, Karen? What are you talking about? She's wild. Paul, I only spoke with her for a few minutes. She just reminded me that you'd be plugging the spaghetti sauce. I don't need this heat. Understand that? Yeah. Yeah. So why is she upset with me? She kept me on hold for a f***ing hour. I might have had a little bit of attitude, but she doesn't need to bust my balls over it. I'm going to talk to Kara. I'll straighten this thing out. I know just what to say to her. Okay? Okay, you know her better than I do. But, Paul, she works for you, not the other way around. Maybe it's time you laid down the law. You're a famous actor. Mr. Movie Star! (laughs) That's right. I'm Paul Sorvino. Let's talk again when we try the wine. Now everybody listen to this. On this new Favorite Crimes episode, I'd like to talk about another podcast, the Decoder Ring Theater. Decoder Ring Theater creates radio plays in the classic style. Actors read out well-crafted scripts with added sound effects and organ music. They have two crime series that alternate. 
The Adventures of the Red Panda and Blackjack Justice. The Red Panda follows the template established by the Street and Smith novels and later radio program called The Shadow. Panda, played by Greg Taylor, is a vigilante crime fighter whose secret identity is a wealthy pillar of the community. He has a trusty female partner to interact with, namely the Flying Squirrel, played by Clarissa Taylor. The duo is also married in real life. The Squirrel has filled many roles on the show. She first became the Panda's driver, and like the Shadow's Margot Lane, she was one of the few who knew the Panda's secret. Through the run of the show, she has become the Red Panda's equal. After much flirtation, the characters were married. The comedic tone set by the show makes it an all-around family-friendly program. Currently, the Red Panda series adds another layer of radio nostalgia by setting the show in a universe that parallels the 1940s war years. They fight Nazis who are allied with supernatural forces. Another wrinkle finds the squirrel and panda joining a secret fighting unit that has also recruited one of the duo's ex-arch enemy. The Dakota Ring Theater series Blackjack Justice is by far my favorite. It's similar in basic construction to the Red Panda. A man and a woman are crime-fighting partners. But Jack Justice and Trixie Dixon are cheap detectives rather than masked vigilantes. I love the Hammett Chandler type radio private eyes. Again, this series has a light comic tone. I find some of the situations written for a more mature audience when compared to the Red Panda. Blackjack Justice is inflated with language, both hard-boiled slang and at least at the opening of each well-worn plot, one of our heroes takes their turn presenting some Baroque soliloquy about life in the detective biz. The actress Andrea Lyons plays gumshoe Trixie Dixon. In my opinion, Trixie's the best written character on Dakota Ring Theater. She's always capable and not at all interested in her partner romantically. She may respect his abilities, but that respect is well hidden behind an amusing screen of insults. Snappy patter is the default mode for most of the detective's encounters. Dakota Ring Theater is great radio. Hey, Paul, I just thought of something. You can't have Sorvino without Vino. Pretty clever, huh? That's enough. Okay, well, tonight, number 11, what are we drinking? Hi, Paul. Tee <laughs> Big house wine. Paul, you know, I've begun to model myself after one of the characters you played in the movies. Can you guess which one? You're going to tell me, right? No, it was Lips Manless from Dick Tracy. I begin slurping up oysters and pairing them with Sauvignon Blanc. How beautiful. Look at that. Yeah, he gets really excited over oysters. The last time he went out, he accidentally catapulted one into his shoulder. The juice ran down his arm very smooth. He did it right in front of the waitress. She was nice enough to bring the slob another blue point. It was very graceful. In honor of your visit, we will be pairing Big House wine with your spaghetti sauce. That's the authentic Italian marinara. No, uh, we didn't get the marinara. We'll be trying your vodka sauce. What the hell is going on? What do you mean? The vodka sauce was on sale. 
It's tradition in my family to make marinara sauce the same way our ancestors made it in Naples. So what about the vodka sauce? You made that too, right? You didn't play straight with me. If the stuff is in your house, do not eat it. Repeat, I mark you, do not eat it. If you are a merchant and have it on your shelves, do not sell it. If you happen to have a distributorship and you distribute this material, close your doors, make no more sales. I'm sure it'll be fine. Here, have some. Yes, have some. I made it for you. I don't need that. Ain't gonna happen to me. You understand? Mmm, it tastes great. What is all this carrying on, false modesty? Here you go, try some, Paul. Can I have a word alone with Mr. Sorvino? Uh-oh. I know that look. You're in for it now, Paul. I had it in my mind that we would enjoy one of your products together. Who cares what you had in mind? <laughs> you don't need my services anymore. You can take it from here. I'll tell you what, you pay me what you owe me because you're half a lunatic anyhow. Paul, you shouldn't talk to number 11 that way. What's this about paying him? I said I'd give him a C-note if he would try the vodka sauce. Okay, everybody, let's eat. What? We're doing him a favor talking about this jar sauce on the show. It's free advertising. We can't afford to hand out $100 bills. Send me a check. Wait a minute, you jerk. You can... You can try the pasta or don't. You come in here and insult my co-host. She takes your crummy sauce, works her magic until it's edible, and you want a kickback? This isn't done. It isn't done on my show. It isn't done on radio. You're dead to me. Your family's dead to me. Your house can burn down. I wouldn't piss on the ashes. I may not make an honest buck. I don't work for no two-bit Nazi. We could keep this up all night. I have more clips. Man, I like talking like a mobster. I know, honey. Are we through now? I feel so alive. Nobody says that you can't do what you want to do. What's that sound? Could it be? It's number nine. I might as well just leave and go eat worms. Sounds good. It is. It is number nine. Hi, guys. What you drinking? We're drinking Fat Bastard Pinot Noir tonight. Oh, I can't stay. I actually have to, um, time to get the scarf pressed. program change we are no longer going to be drinking big house red that's right number 11 we were going to drink big house red in honor of paul sorvino because of his role in goodfellows what will we be drinking instead this is still in honor of uh, paul sorvino this wine we're drinking tonight is called fat bastard before we review the wine i want to mention my new wine aerator it's called the Venturi, and it's a popular gizmo. One thing that distinguishes it from other aerators 
is the noise it makes as it mixes air into your wine. I just used it with this fat bastard. Here, I'll do it again so you can hear. Isn't that neat? The spitty noise lets me know it's working. I really love the Venturi. You can find it for around $24. You'll want to use this with the bigger red wines that we favor. It also comes with a little strainer to catch any sediments. I also now have a Trudeau wine thermometer. It's a band that clips to the outside of your wine bottle. This will give you a reading on the serving temperature of the wine. Inscribed above and below the thermometer strip is a guide for the proper temperature range for various wine varieties. You can find this device for about $9. I've clamped the thermometer around our wine. The serving temperature for this Pinot is around 66 Fahrenheit. Number 11, uh, We've, we've drank another wine by the same winemaker that makes Fat Bastard. Mad Dogs and Englishmen. If you remember, Guy Anderson is the vintner who created Mad Dogs. But before he sourced his wine out of Spain, he was also known for the Fat Bastard wines. And the grapes he uses for these wines are sourced from France. He also didn't create Fat Bastard on his own. He used the expertise of French winemaker Terry Bodenham. Fat Bastard started out as an experiment that Thierry had been doing in the back of his cellar, leaving a barrel on the lees. That's leaving the uh, deadened yeast cells inside the barrel and just ignoring them until you bottle it. Pretty sure we didn't care too much for Mad Dogs and Englishmen. It was a little bit... Uh, strong. This wine is the first wine we've tried that's from France, which is the world-renowned area for wine, so it's weird that we are just starting now to try one. This is from southern France, the Languedoc region, or more specifically, Herault. And this is 100% Pinot Noir, and uh, like I said, we've aerated it. It's at the right temperature. Number 11, what will we be pairing our wine with tonight? We stopped at a lo lovely little bakery, and we got Napoleons and croissants. Oh, okay. Could you describe the label for people who might want to find this on the shelves? It's a white square. says Fat Bastard pretty big, and it's got a hippo that's sitting on top of the white square that seems to be crushing it down a little bit. The hippo is kind of cute. Um, he looks like he's having it, found a good place to rest. And you can tell that he's heavy. At this tasting, it's so dark, we can't really see the full color. The clarity was good. The body was uh, exceptionally good, full-bodied. Now that is what you call a fit vested. The aroma notes, we didn't really uh, smell any special uh, aroma note. It did smell a little bit sweeter in the Rydell glass, the Pinot Noir glass, and it's shaped, it's shaped more like a brandy sniffer, snifter 
then my uh, larger bowl tulip shaped glass. So the, the glass did have an effect. It is supposed to have the taste of strawberry and uh, cherries. We know what strawberry tastes like because the croissant that we got is a strawberry cream cheese. And I can tell you that in the wine, I do not taste any strawberries, do not smell any strawberries. You know how the white part of the strawberry, it, before you hull them, is slightly bitter? Maybe that's the strawberry they're talking about. Maybe they need to use our homegrown, the very sweet, tasty, flavorful strawberries. That would help. We felt the tannins in our mouths, and so we'd have to say if it had a taste note, it would probably be a sour cherry. We didn't think it was very complex. The acid balance was very good, uh, slightly more acid, which is what we like. The alcohol balance was good. Uh, what's the alcohol percentage? That would be 12.5. The price for this was $10, so that's a perfect price score for us. Uh, we do have a final score for this wine. It gets a whopping 78. Higher, I think, than what uh, Mad Dogs and Englishmen got. That's the juicy truth for episode 14. Adieu. That's good French. In the last Juicy Truth, I mentioned that we would be discussing the serving temperatures of wine. You might think knowing the exact temperature of your drink is more fussy than you want to be. I thought if I stuck mainly to red wines that uh, room temperature was going to be close enough. But because I want to enjoy every bit of the wine drinking experience, I'm going to take more care of serving temperature. I think Rotcast has sampled some reds that could have been served better at a lower temperature. If you listen back, you'll hear us repeat many times that all we taste is alcohol. That would be a tip-off that the wine is too warm. Instead of listing a bunch of temperatures, I'm just going to explain the range that the red and white wines should uh, be served at. Before I do that, I want you to imagine that you care deeply about the temperature of wine and think about what that means. This is possibly where the wine lover becomes stereotyped as snooty, snobbish, and pretentious. I mean, you may want your beer cold and your coffee hot, but if you needed them at a specific temperature, people would think you're pretty fancy. Now, the temperature of reds Red wines should fall between 64 and 54 degrees Fahrenheit. Whites should fall between 52 and 42 degrees Fahrenheit. A good temperature to store all wine at is 55 degrees. And then when you uh, remove it from whatever cooler you'd be uh, keeping it in, it will warm up quickly enough so your guests don't get antsy. From now on, before we review the wines on Rotcast, we will state the ideal temperature for the type of wine we're drinking and then the actual temperature of the wine we're sampling. You can go onto the Rotcast website and under Juicy Truth, you'll find a, a complete temperature chart for all the different varietals, both red and white.
It's time to reveal the chapter and verse movie we quizzed you about in episode 13. Remember, that show is about fathers. The answer is Frequency, starring Dennis Quaid and Jim Caviezel. The tagline for the movie was, A son's only hope to stop a murder is the father who's been dead for 30 years. Frequency is crammed with story. It's as if the writer, Toby Emmerich, wanted options. Dennis Quaid plays Frank Sullivan, a father and fireman, so you have all the action and danger of firefighting scenes. The mother is a nurse, so you have the option of a medical drama. With the son John, played by Jim Caviezel, and his police detective partner, played by Andre Brager, you have the chase and suspense elements of a police story. Since this movie is about the Sullivan family unit, you also have the schmaltz, of how a family cares for each other. The movie is filled with Kodak moments, scenes like when the father helps his son learn to balance and ride a bicycle. Throw in some baseball trivia and layer on top of all this a science fiction, mind-bending time travel scenario. How could this not be a great movie? Like Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. Now it's time for this episode's chapter and verse. Your hints are... The name of this movie has been used before. The director of this film also makes documentaries. This is chapter 8 and it's called Cut a Deal. It's 9 minutes and 22 seconds. There's an establishing shot of the house. It's raised up on columns with a wraparound porch. The surrounding trees are draped with Spanish moss. At the center of the frame are two figures perched on the rail of the porch. The camera dollies up to the figures. Two men are quietly talking. Terence, the younger man, wears a suit, and his father wears sandals and his shirt open. There's a cut to inside the house. Two women are struggling over a bag. They stop inside the foyer of the house. The older woman wins control of the bag. Both are yelling. The older woman holds up a small plastic baggie of powder, shaking it violently. The camera pivots to the right to show the reaction of the younger woman. Behind her is an antique hat stand mirror. Light from outside is caught in the mirror and reflects into the hall. At the center of the frame, the front door opens. Two shadows cross the wall. The men from the porch enter and listen to the older woman complaining. We're in the middle of the argument as the camera pivots back and forth. The older woman holds up the clear pouch and shakes out the powder in front of the group. Behind her in the hall is an antique medicine cabinet. There is a knock at the door. Two plain clothes detectives are there. One keeps his hand in his pockets. The other holds open his suit to show a gun and badge on his belt. The man with the badge gestures for Terence to come out onto the porch. Terence is taller than the two cops, but he's hunched and holds his body stiffly. His shoulders are at an odd angle. The cops are smiling as they explain the situation. Terence's face is sad and distant. He pulls a large pistol from the front of his pants and hands it to the shorter cop. Terence turns around and enters the front hall of the house again. His father and the two women haven't changed their position. 
Terrence tells the younger woman, Frankie, that he wants to show her something. He gives a little smile. The scene changes to the back of the house. Our view is from far away, like the first establishing shot. We're looking through a natural archway between two trees. A dog is tied under the columns that raise up the house. Terrence and Frankie walk out from under the house. The camera descends from up in the trees. It follows Terrence and Frankie into a small outbuilding. Terrence gives Frankie a tour. He opens the door to the small house. It doesn't appear to be in use. He reaches up to turn on a ceiling light. It doesn't work. Terrence pushes open a wooden shutter to let more light into the room. The camera is behind Frankie's back. She's looking around in wonder. She wears a sundress that shows off her back nicely. Terrence has a blissful grin on his face. Frankie listens contently as Terrence tells a story from his childhood. He turns her around and points out through the door. Frankie looks out and imagines what Terrence describes. She smiles. She's happy because he's happy. He says, And I would imagine things here. Pirates, buried treasure. My dad didn't like that so much, but my mom, she, she got it. And, uh, and before she died, she bought me a metal detector. Come up here, I'm going to show you something. And then, look at that. Right out there, I thought that pirates came up the Mississippi and that they buried treasure right there by that tree next to the house. The scene changes again to outside a courthouse. Carved into the stone front of the building are two large pelicans. Between the birds are carved the words, This is a government of laws, not men. Below, at either side of the door, the words law and order appear. The scene changes to an office inside this building. A man sits at a desk. There's a flag behind him. His brow is furrowed and he shrugs in a I'm helpless gesture. He shakes his head slightly. Terence is on the other side of the desk. He's hunched forward listening. As Terence's captain finishes speaking, Terence's eyes widen and one of his eyebrows lifts comically. There's a cut and we are in another room inside this building. We see a security camera looking down from the ceiling. Terence sees three more cameras. He flattens his back to the door jamb and as he looks to the cameras, we know he's searching for a blind spot where the cameras will not reach. The room has shelves lined with boxes for storage. A scruffy, long-haired man comes up to Terence. He looks worried. Terence gives him orders, and he goes to leave. Two new cops enter the room, a bearded man wearing a badge around his neck and a woman carrying a cup of coffee. The woman moves out of the doorway to let the scruffy cop out. The new cops have two plastic bags. Terence takes the bags. He points to an electronic scale. He explains the scale isn't working. To demonstrate, he places the bag on the weighing plate. The scales are inoperable. He ushers the cops out of the room. Then he returns to the camera's blind spot and puts the bags of drugs into his jacket. The screen fades to black. The blackness is broken as Terrence opens a set of doors. He walks into a bar. A man tries to slow his progress, but Terrence keeps moving stiffly ahead. He stops at a table near the back of the bar. A man in a white suit named Fate is drinking with several other men. Terence asks Fate to speak privately. Fate asks why. Terence bends down and whispers a threat. 
Fate takes a small glass of liquor, drinks it in one swallow, and flips the glass over and puts it on the table upside down. He stands to leave the bar with Terrence. They walk together down the sidewalk outside the bar. Fate looks suspiciously around. He thinks he may be walking into a trap. They walk past a man barbecuing. The neighborhood looks overgrown with weeds. The sidewalk is old and broken. The two men have a brief discussion which ends this way. You decide if you want to go to the next step. What about them murders? You don't give a f about them no more? Look at me. Now look at you. I never did. That's the end of Chapter 8, Cut a Deal. Do you know this movie? Hear the answer in Episode 15. The musical bed you're hearing is called Haunted by Kim Schutterley. You can contact us by email. Our address is mail at rotcast.com. You can read the Rotcast blog at www.venostalgia.com. Our Skype name is Call Rotcast. That's C A L L R O T C A S T. Visit the website to learn more about the wines and link to more content. Listen next time when you will hear. Director Pakula, Donald Sutherland, and Jane Fonda arrive and start work on the first scene. They get down to the business of shooting a story about a specific subculture in a city like New York. Sutherland explains his role among the people in the subworld. The character that I play comes from Pennsylvania. He's a small town policeman, and he comes to New York looking for his best friend. Director Alan Vakula perhaps sums up best how New York is dictating the shape of the script and the movie. New York really uh, functioned for us in many ways. I think if we had shot it within the confines and protections of a film studio, protected from all the inconveniences, all of the street pain you see, and all of the discomfort and the agonies, the picture might have had less intensity and less immediacy, certainly for all of us concerned in making it. It's a tough city. It's a tough movie. It's Clute.